This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's said that physicians make the worst patients. Many of us don't have a primary healthcare provider, and we often avoid periodic preventive exams. Instead, substituting corridor consultations and, in many cases, self-managing our health. In general, physicians are often uncomfortable assuming the role of a patient. Today's topic is when the doctor becomes the patient, and our guests today include two physicians who are highly qualified to discuss this topic, Dr. Melanie Swift and Dr. Phil Hagen, both internists who work in the Physician Health Clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Swift and Dr. Hagen are both specialists in occupational medicine in the Division of Preventive, Occupational, and Aerospace Medicine at Mayo. Melanie, Phil, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks, Daryl. Good to be here. Well, let's expand on that issue of why we as physicians are having such a difficult time to become patients. What's going on there? Well, I think there's some truth to it that we're bad patients because we think we know too much. But I think it's also the case that we feel a little embarrassed about being a patient, maybe because we should have known enough. Um, And it was interesting when we did a study, we surveyed uh, two populations of physicians, um, between 100, 150 physicians. And what they told us was, for barriers to getting in to take care of myself, one was an obvious one, no time. Second was, I'm uncomfortable seeing a colleague. So someone wrote on their form, love my colleagues, but I don't want them doing my colonoscopy. And then the third was, and it surprised us a little, my employer doesn't support me going in and getting it. Doesn't mean they said that you shouldn't get it, but they just really weren't supportive of it. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are a lot of reasons that physicians don't go in and get care when they should or preventively. Um, But uh, it's our job, I think, to figure out how to provide those services in the way they need them. Mm -hmm. I suspect also that many fear confidentiality issues in their clinic or wherever they work. Exactly. I think that um, there is a fear that if your patients or your colleagues know that you're struggling with a health problem, that some confidence in you as a physician capable of providing safe care may come into question. Mm -hmm. And, And when we asked them what they wanted... What they wanted was the ability to get in for themselves or, or for a colleague, to get in quickly, to get a, a, uh, all of the things they needed done in a short itinerary, and to have somewhere that they could go away from their own institution. Mm-hmm. You said something else, Phil, that I kind of wonder if this is part of it. Uh, physicians sometimes know too much, and you know, I, I suspect many who get some symptoms often tend to think of the worst possible thing that can happen and then all the complications that can occur if that if that is true. Uh, and they often tend to think the worst, and they're afraid to come in. Right. I think it, it goes both ways there. One is uh, to dismiss it. Oh, I know that could be bad, yeah. but I dismiss it. Or, oh, I know that could be bad, and I, I'm putting my head in the sand. I don't want to know. Yeah. You know, I, I know I take care of some colleagues here at Mayo, and I, I, they don't come in very often. I don't think there's being seen elsewhere, but uh, so that that is an issue. Well, 
What are some of the more common health conditions physicians experience? You both work in a unique situation. There aren't too many physician health clinics. So what kind of problems are you seeing in our patients? So I think our experience here um, is fairly different from most programs that sort of advertise themselves as a physician health program because for many, many years, the primary problem being addressed nationally was impairment from substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a very important problem. Physicians are certainly not immune to that problem, and there are obvious safety concerns. However, now in 2019, every state and every state licensing board has a confidential mechanism for physicians who have a substance abuse problem or who are impaired by alcohol mm -hmm. um, to get treatment, monitoring, return to practice safely. So we really don't see that type of problem very much in our program. What we see is really the spectrum of everything else. Um, musculoskeletal conditions, you know, the, the person who operates um, microscopically and wears loops and has fused their cervical spine in a forward flex posture <laughs> because they've just never attended to that sort of thing. Um, people with um, neurologic problems, maybe neurodegenerative problems, sometimes impacting their ability to do procedures or practice. We see cognitive um, problems, mild cognitive impairment, and all along the spectrum. Sometimes we see concerns for cognitive problems that just we need to sort out, mm -hmm. whether that's um, a, a true condition or not. And then we see um, cardiovascular conditions, we see pulmonary disease, we see diabetes. and um, So physicians are often trying to manage those problems themselves. Um, and sometimes they're really, as we've discussed before, afraid that their condition could impact their ability to continue practicing. Mm -hmm. So even though it's not something that we would call the impaired physician, which is terminology we don't use much anymore, um, they're people with health problems, and they're important to address so that they can keep practicing. Right. And generally, they love what they do and want to keep doing it, even though we'll talk about, I'm sure, how there are a lot of stresses involved with work. They're generally coming to us because they want to stay productive and they yeah. want to keep working. It, it, you know, one of the things that really surprised me uh, when we started this program four or five years ago was the number of uh, the variety of the conditions, but the number of, of questions about cognitive function. It shouldn't have surprised me because almost 25 percent of practicing physicians are over the age of 65. It kind of blows you away. Mm -hmm. But if you look at those risk curves for virtually every major disease, it picks up, the inflection occurs at about age 60. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the prevalence of mild cognitive impairment in people over the age of 65 is about 5 to 10 percent. So, yeah. so we should expect these to be there. We should also expect these multiple comorbidities, people who have diabetes and heart disease and vascular disease. Um, those are going to come, and, and those affect us in a significant way. Yeah. Well, Mel Melanie, one term that you used, I'm glad you brought this up, but these are not impaired physicians. Uh, these are patients. These are people who have the same conditions as everybody else. These are patients 
who we have to have the same compassion and interest in caring for as everybody else. Exactly. And that term impaired uh, physician kind of has a bit of a pejorative connotation it now because uh, it implies that you are not safe to be practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. You are impaired. Um, so we have physicians who um, may need some accommodation. They may need some um, adjustment. They may, may need some sort of restriction mm-hmm. or a special equipment, for instance, to allow them to continue practicing. But by and large, the physicians that we see are perfectly capable of practicing, but they may need some help to do so. Yeah. Well, many of the, my colleagues that I see uh, are really stressed. And the term physician burnout has been used a lot in the press lately. So what exactly is that, and are we truly seeing more of that now than in the past? Yeah. Um, well, as far as what burnout is, most people have a gut of what they mean when they say burnout. There is there is a definition of it. It's a syndrome, and it's characterized classically by emotional exhaustion, um, depersonalization, which is where you stop thinking of your patients as people and you start seeing them as widgets or mm-hmm. a number or the next task you have to get through. Um, and thirdly, uh, a sense of loss of professional accomplishment. Far and away, the most common thing that you see is the emotional exhaustion, um, particularly later in career. There's a little more of the depersonalization early. Um, and you see burnout at all phases of training over, over a third of incoming medical students on day one of medical school in several studies will already score high on a burnout inventory. They haven't even started. It's the gauntlet that they've run to get there Mm -hmm. and the pressure that they feel. So we start out (laughs) as a profession, we start out burned out. I, one of the things, just a couple of comments on burnout is, um, we as a as a professional group need to do better. We know and have published on the fact that burnout has been increasing for the last ten to fifteen years, and we know pretty well what the major sources of it are. So, to me, that says we're not doing a good job of of dicing those up and addressing them. The second piece is. For us in the Physician Health Center, a lot of times what we've, we see is physicians who uh, didn't have the time to, to address their burnout or didn't recognize their burnout and have gone past burnout to some disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to me, burnout is a risk factor, really important to address it, like hypertension. Uh, and if we don't address it, the next step is some medical disease. Or loss of a career is the Good other point. thing. So burnout in and of itself is not a medical diagnosis. It's a state that people may find themselves in professionally. And it correlates highly with developing depression. Um, but people either stick in there and get more and more burned out and more and more at risk of depression. Or what we're seeing is they, they leave the profession. They go from full-time to part-time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they might change their specialty to be less intense. Um, and this is a national problem because we need physicians. We need access to care. And 
if we keep burning out our physicians, we won't have that. Right. Well, we could spend another hour on that topic, but let's, let's change the direction a little bit. Um, are physicians at increased risk for health problems? Yeah, so I would say yes and no. So we've, we've just talked about uh, burnout and the fact that it can lead to conditions. So on that side, I'd say yes. If you look at the literature, uh, physicians ought to know how to keep themselves a little healthier than the general population. Right. And so uh, going back even 34 years, uh, they did have a lower rate of heart disease um, and, and lower rates of smoking, therefore lower rates of lung cancer. But again, we're all going to get something sometime. And if a quarter of the population is over 65, uh, mm -hmm. these conditions are going to show up and they're going to be affecting us. Yeah. This episode is sponsored in part by Giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B, -I -I an on-demand library of medical talks covering the most important and advanced topics trending in primary and specialty care. Subscribe now to learn from subject matter experts from Mayo Clinic's top conferences. Subscribers to Giblib receive unlimited access to new exclusive content released every week. Learn more by visiting giblib.com slash mailclinic and use promo code MAYOTALKS to receive one month of free access. That's giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B dot com slash mailclinic. Well, many of our colleagues around the country do not have access to a physician health clinic and they're being cared for by their colleagues, presumably primary care providers. Uh, how effective are they in providing health to other physicians and health care providers? I think there's a little bit of a reluctance on all of our part uh, to treat a colleague. You know, partly we, we're not sure we're going to be as good as they think we ought to be. Um, but I, I would say primary care does a really good job of addressing the conditions in most of the medical needs if they have the time and space to do it and if the physicians show up. The piece that's harder when you're dealing with a physician as a patient, and I would say most people in primary care don't have time to think about is, what's the effect of that medical condition on their ability to practice? Or even what's the effect of the medicine I'm giving them on their ability to practice? And so in occupational medicine, that's a lot of our focus is thinking about those things, what affects a, a person's ability to do a job. Um, and so I think the important thing probably in primary care is, uh, you know, get your colleagues to come in. And if you're a physician that hasn't been in, find a primary care physician. Right. Because about 25 to 30 percent of physicians can't name a primary care physician as their own. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing is for the primary care physician not to feel as though they're the one that has to sort out all those pieces of how it affects their ability to practice. Because that's a huge burden um, to, to think that, that uh, I'm supposed to take care of all the medical conditions and then to, to determine whether or not uh, this person's safe to practice. I know what I've one of the things I've learned after providing care to my colleagues for 40 years is they don't want to be treated differently. They want to be treated like a patient. They don't want me to assume that they know something about their condition. They want an explanation and the same one that I give other patients. They want to be treated like a patient. Absolutely. 
And the further we go in our career, I think the more we subspecialize and focus down into our own comfort zone and our own knowledge base. And to go back then and try to understand everything that's happened in diabetes. So if you're a surgeon with diabetes, there's this sense that you should know medicine. You know, I think people feel that, Mm -hmm. but you can't possibly know how to manage diabetes if you are focused in and training in another area. Um, And so every physician that I've met, I like to ask them, you know, do you have a primary care doctor? Can I put you on the spot? Do you have a primary care doctor? He's sitting to your left. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) So I won't ask you the next question that I ask people just out of courtesy here. Mm -hmm. But usually I ask, how do you like them? He's (laughs) so-so. Noted. (laughs) But they love their primary care physicians. Well, it's an honor also to be asked by your colleagues to, Absolutely. To, for you to trust, for them to trust their health care with you. That's a real honor. I love my primary care doctor. He takes great care of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest problem is most people simply don't have one. Most physicians simply do not have one. Mm-hmm. It takes time. You have to set it up. But goodness, once it happens, it is so liberating to have someone yeah. else helping to direct that care. Well, let's, you're in a unique situation, Physicians Health Clinic. Let's talk about your practice. Maybe you have some concepts that you use where healthcare providers can adopt their practice and provide better care to their colleagues. So tell me about your Physician Health Clinic. Sure. Um, So our practice really is focused on the needs of the individual physician. We provide a spectrum of services, um, and we really customize that person's itinerary. We do an intake and find out kind of what's going on with you. One of the things that we always ask that is often missing in a primary care evaluation is asking the question up front, how is this impacting you at work? Are you having any difficulties at work? Has anyone at work suggested or required that you have this evaluation? Is anyone at your board asking that you have this evaluation? Because what we find is that when there's a problem in someone's practice and they've been uh, approached by their board or they've been approached by their hospital administrator and told you need to get an evaluation, one, they want to get it confidentially and usually not in their home institution. And two, they will not necessarily want to share that on the phone the first time they call. Mm -hmm. They will say, I need to come in because I think I'm having memory problems. And then when we specifically ask about the occupational issues, we find out that they may be on administrative leave. They may be um, have had their practice restricted, that sort of thing. So that's one thing that we do on the front end that is probably different than most primary care evaluations would do. Um, it's a spectrum. So we see, uh, physicians who are doing well and want to actually take care of themselves and do preventive care. And they may come for general, a general exam and preventive services. They may want to explore burnout prevention. Mm -hmm. And we do offer an individualized two hour session with our colleague, Greg Kauser, who's an occupational psychiatrist, who will sit down and help them develop their own 
burnout prevention plan, bearing in mind there's only so much an individual can do. Burnout, as we mentioned earlier, is really a, a systematic issue. I won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, then we have people who have um, just healthcare problems and they, or a symptom or need a diagnosis confirmed or they need a management plan. And so they may come in and we would do a general exam and have them see some of our specialist colleagues, get a plan to take home and enact. Then we have that far end of the spectrum where they really are having difficulty practicing. Um, maybe it's been a degenerative process and they've gotten to the point where it's hard for them to just keep going in their practice, or maybe they've had a stroke or they've had um, a new condition and it's impairing their ability to work. And for those folks, we always do an occupational medicine consultation alongside our general medical evaluation because we want to make sure that the condition's correctly diagnosed and treated optimally. Our goal is to help people get back their full function. So we don't want to just come in and do an, an occupational assessment and say, yes, you need a restriction or you need uh, to change your practice. We want to then help them find ways to get better. Mm -hmm. So we want to optimize their medical condition, and that's our first priority. Mm -hmm. And then we also can guide them occupationally how to deal with their licensing board, how to deal with their employer, um, and in some cases help them if they do need a formal disability process. Okay. One of the great things about working here at Mayo is the tremendous amount of resources we have available. Uh, one of those resources that I, I use, I teach a lot here, is the simulation center. How do you use the simulation center in the physician health clinic? Yeah, you know, as Melanie said, when someone comes to us, and about half the physicians that come to us with a question, a complex medical condition that might be affecting their ability to practice, about half of them are self-referred, and about half of them are referred by an employer. And so... As Melanie said, what we, we want to do is make sure that the medical conditions are diagnosed correctly, treated correctly, and know whether they're as good as they're going to get, because that's important in deciding what they can do in terms of, of going back to practice. And then the next step is, as an occupational physician, you go, okay, now I'm a doctor, I ought to know what a neurosurgeon does, but I really don't know what a neurosurgeon does. And the beauty of practicing here is that we can pick up the phone and talk to a neurosurgeon and say, okay... Uh, here's what we need to determine. Here's what I need to know. How do we do this? And you mentioned the simulation center, which has been a huge boon to us because a fair number of the physicians that we see are uh, physicians who do procedures, proceduralists. And in the simulation center, they can create a number of these procedures. Sometimes the procedure has a, a well-documented uh, standardized uh, scoring system like bronchoscopy. So we have had uh, pulmonologists who've had a stroke come in, say, can they safely do a bronchoscopy? Got that. Um, some, sometimes we, there isn't a standardized system. And so the people in the simulation center can take the expert input, the neurosurgeon, and create a simulation that's pretty darn good in terms of a job task that a neurosurgeon might do. And then the other thing that we've learned is that in some of the specialties, so for instance, uh, I had a dermatologist physician, had a stroke, question was, uh, could he do procedures? And so uh, I called up the Sim Center and said, hey, do you have dermatologic procedures? 
They did not. I called up the dermatology training program and said, oh, yeah, we have our own lab where we simulate all these procedures. So um, if we look around, we find that our colleagues are uh, often very willing to take an hour, two hours, create an appropriate simulation, because I think they, that all of us can see ourselves in the same position and say, yeah, help me here. Mm -hmm. The beauty of having them do the simulation before they get into a clinical setting is we've got a lot better sense as to how they can do on specific job tasks. And we can turn around and tell the employer um, that here's what we did to the best of our ability to determine this person uh, appears to be functioning safely and appears to be uh, able to do these job tasks. That's, I think, a huge help to the employer as well. It doesn't mean that they just say, okay, yeah, go back to work, because they're the one that's paying the liability bill uh, or that they're, they're the credentialing committee. So they also, and will often ask, okay, what would you do next? And we've been in that position many times where we'd say, okay, if this physician worked here, what would we do? And again, sometimes you'll call up the specialist and say, how many procedures would you have this person work with a partner sort of as a second uh, before you'd have a comfort level? And they can often tell us. So it's usually helpful to, to be practicing here and to have access to, mm -hmm. to all of these people in these super specialized areas. Well, I get a sense we're just kind of scratching the surface for a lot of these things, and we could probably spend a lot more time talking about it. But could you briefly summarize the key points for our listeners regarding providing care to physicians and healthcare providers? Sure. I mean, I would say, simply put, physicians have health issues just like everyone else. And it can be hard for a physician to become a patient. And those are reasons that they bring to the table, but there's also reasons that we make it difficult for physicians to be patients. Most conditions can be managed so that we can continue practicing safely, but physicians, also, physicians often need guidance and help to facilitate that. And ultimately, I think we need to continue working to change the culture to remove those barriers so that physicians are supported by their employers and by the system in which we practice to prioritize their own health care because we can't take care of others if we don't take care of ourselves first. Yeah. And I think if you catch yourself thinking, yeah, I know I really should go in and do that, but you don't do it, stop, reach out to somebody major medical center in your area, medium-sized medical center, whatever seems appropriate. But I can guarantee you that there are a whole bunch of other physicians just like you out there wondering how the heck they're going to get their own health care taken care of uh, in the midst of busy day. Mm -hmm. Call a timeout, reach out, get help for it, get it assessed, whether it's just preventive care or it's quaternary care for a complex set of medical conditions. It's like the oxygen mask in the airplane. Put yours on first. You can't help others until you do that for yourself. And if you've got more than one kid, choose your favorite. Choose your favorite. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been discussing when the doctor becomes the patient with doctors Melanie Swift and Phil Hagen, both specialists in occupational health who work in the physician health clinic at the Mayo Clinic. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. 
Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.